0: Psalm 72 is where we will be this morning. Um, titled this message, The Perfect King. It makes you think throughout history, this question, who is the greatest king of all time? I think there's much debate that goes into a question like this. If you think about world history and think about the kings and that have had large reign over areas and a monarchy system. Some things or some, some names that maybe come to mind are names like, and I don't endorse these people, but Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Cyprus the Great, Caesar, Constantine, Louis XIV, Henry Eighth, LeBron James. Wow. I don't think so, but... I right, throw that out there. but, but you, type, you type this into Google, "Who is the greatest king of all time?" and you are going to get a ton of different answers. Some websites list a, a list of 15 to 20 people throughout history, most of them longer ago, but some recent. However, these individuals have a few things in common. They lived, they died. Their kingdoms are no more. Many of them did terrible things to become what they would, would be and what their countries would be. But they eventually all ended. Their lives, their rule, their kingdoms. Some of these people, you don't even know who their names are. You don't even know who they are. But they're, they're, they're done, they're gone, and they are no more. What we're we going to look at today is Jesus. The Messiah King coming to earth, establishing his kingdom. He is the perfect king. We're going to see why that is. But this is there's some prophetic language here in Psalm 72. This is a actually a Psalm of Solomon, not to be confused with a Song of Solomon. This is a Psalm of Solomon. He has about 18 of them. This might be the most well-known of the 18 What Solomon is doing here is he's he's pointing to the to the near future, ultimately to the 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 coming future of Christ. So that near future is he is he is hoping and he is praying that the king of Israel after him and him, him and after him would live their lives in this way until the coming king of Jesus. So it points to ultimately Christ, but it also is a of instruction for the king that, that comes after him this is how you should lead Israel and there are five things that I think he is praying for specifically he's praying for that that he that that king would be a perfect judge that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom that his kingdom encompasses the whole earth that he will look at people with empathy and that he will be king above Every king. Now, it kind of relates to your five points that I'm going to get to here. Don't stress if there's five points. Now, that's not typical for us, but we're going to move through this quickly. But Jesus does all five of these things perfectly. His kingdom is vast. His reign is eternal. He judges with perfection and his love is wide. In fact, we cannot fathom what his kingship looks like. At all. We get a glimpse of it. But we cannot fully understand it. Partly because his kingship, his leadership, his dominion is perfect. And nothing comes close to comparing to him. So if you look at your outline. Verses 1 through 4 is the king's equitable reign. The king's equitable reign. Verses 5 through 7, the king's everlasting reign. king's everlasting reign. We're starting to see a theme here with some ease. 11, or 8 through 11 is the king's extensive reign. Extensive reign. 12 through 14 is the king's empathetic reign. Empathetic reign. And 15 through 20 is the king's elevated reign. Let's read Psalm 72 together, starting in verse 1. And it says Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Siva bring gifts. May all things fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy When he calls and poor and and the poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy. And he saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood and his sights. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continues as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these, these beautiful words that we see that point us to Christ. Help us to be faithful. Help us to bow to him, knowing that he is perfect. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a psalm of Solomon. And it kind of fits in two categories. It is a royal psalm. Because of the uh, majestic majesty that it portrays. But it is also a messianic psalm. And that's why we are here. That's part of the reason why we are here, is Because it is a messianic psalm. And it is written in such a way. To be a template for a king. That should be pointing ultimately to the coming king of Jesus. Uh, and it's hope that the line of David and Solomon would lead a nation of Israel in such a faithful way and that they in their leading would point to the coming king that is Christ. I hope that makes sense. It's kind of a twofold here. But if you look at verses one through four, the king's equitable reigns kind of starts us through this. Jesus judges rightly and justly. Justice and righteousness is all throughout the first four Verses here in verses 1 through 4. He promotes the well-being of the whole of the people of God. He judges his people with righteousness. The poor and the needy are lifted up and granted deliverance. They they depend on this from the Lord. We depend on this from the Lord. We need the quality that the Lord brings. They needed, it, they needed it then. We need it now. They need it in the end. We need it in the end. God's righteousness and judgment can be seen in the past in the current and can be seen in the future. A righteous king in the land of Israel gave them prosperity. God was blessing when they were obedient. God was not a blessing when they were disobedient. You read through the Kings and the Chronicles. And you see kings, some that were righteous and did what was right in the sight of the Lord and others. That's maybe more, more than likely they were not righteous and they did not honor God and they did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And this ultimately leads to the destruction of Israel in 722 B.C. But ultimately, the coming king is going to right the wrong. He's going to judge the world correctly. Those who are are wicked will reap what they have sown. And those who are righteous will experience the righteousness of God. Look at verse four here. This is what Solomon hopes that the king will do. Knowing exactly what Christ will do. He's going to help those who are oppressed by, by crushing the oppressor himself. He's going to level the playing field. He's going to crush the oppressor, the evil rulers to defend the poor. It seems like they are poor because of leadership, even though God wants prosperity for all. This is not happening because poor leadership is oppressing the poor and they're not giving them equal opportunity. This is essentially the message or some of the message or one of the messages, I should say, of the minor prophets our community group this past summer got to work through the book of Amos. And as we worked through it, it talked a lot about leaders and their terrible leadership and how their leadership was taking advantage of the poor and the marginalized. I got to preach on Micah chapter two a couple of weeks ago down at, at one of our uh, sister churches in Athens. And the message was essentially about how the leaders were terrible leaders. And they were oppressing the poor and taking advantage of them in broad daylight because there was nothing that they could do. So essentially, the leaders of Israel were gaining off the poor and the marginalized people. They had done a terrible job of leading the people of Israel. The Lord is about to crush them. And those leaders, as the Old Testament went on, see that they did not listen to this song. That's song negated the them. They did not listen to it. They totally, fully disregarded it. But there's hope. That God sees it. He knows what is happening. Jesus judges purpose perfectly. He judges righteously. He brings hope. And this is not about the rich and the poor materialistically. Friends, you can have all the money in the world and you can be very, very poor spiritually. You can be living on dirt floors and have tarps over your head and you can be very, very rich spiritually. And this kind of led me to James chapter two. So if you want to flip there to James chapter two, this is, it's kind of titled The Sin of Partiality. But I think it speaks to What's being said here, and it really applies to us today. James chapter two, verse one, it says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and five clo- fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Wow. Have you not made then? Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not rich or, or, or sorry? Are not the rich, the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into the court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's probably three sermons right there. We're not going to go too much into that. I think that the general aspect is, folks, do not show partiality. This could be incredibly difficult, I think, in our culture. Do not show favoritism to those who are in high ranks. Do your vet best of you. Every, everyone is a sinner saved by grace or a sinner headed towards hell. In the kingdom, there will be no distinction, there will be just the children of God. And if you are in leadership in this room in some capacity, be careful. Lead with conviction, but also lead with grace. Do not take advantage of people. Think about how you lead and where you yourself can grow. But not only does the king lead with equality, he also leads an everlasting kingdom. Verses five through seven, the king's everlasting reign. It says that while the sun endures and as long as the moon lights the dark throughout all generations over all the earth. The king of Israel will not reign forever, or will he have control of all of the earth? And to be honest with you, that is a very good thing. Forever leadership, really, in any role without plurality around them can be a very dangerous thing. Give a leader control by themselves for a long period of time. And that sounds like a recipe for Disaster. But as it does point to Christ, it points to a long, just reign for the king of Israel. The hope that the king will reign for a long period of time and that he would be just in it as he passes on on to the next person. Even this idea of leadership for a pastor, I think, is is, is helpful. I know many of you in this room are, are not pastors, nor have you ever been pastors, but you've probably been to churches before, different churches. Um, some for long periods of time. And in those long periods of times, you probably saw pastors come and go. One of my favorite people to listen to when it comes to pastoral health is a guy named Brian Croft. He leads a ministry called uh, Practical Shepherding. It's a ministry designed specifically around the care and health of a pastor. Because it's incredibly important. Brian speaks into this. Well, because he dealt with so many obstacles when he pastored a small rural church in Kentucky. One of the things that Brian hits on is this this five-year charge. He charges and challenges pastors as they step into a new pastorate to stay there for at least five years. Because he thinks it takes five years to earn the trust of a congregation and to actually start doing ministry within that church. Because pastoral ministry, it's hard, it's difficult, it's hard on the on the family, it's hard on the spouse, it can be difficult. But when you stay at least five years, Brian says that the church has the, has the opportunity to become more healthy, spiritually, growing, growing numerically, If the leader is faithful and he puts other faithful men around him and alongside of him. It's more likely he's gonna be able to stay and that church will be healthy and that church can actually flourish. Why do I share all of this? Because a faithful, long-lasting leader for the people of Israel helps them flourish as a nation. And the Lord will bless them and help them prosper as a nation. Look at verse 7. It says, The righteous flourish. And the only way they flourish is if the Lord allows it to happen. And the great thing with this is Christ is reigning and his reign is eternal. But not only is his reign eternal... It's also reigning throughout the world, the world eight through 11, the king's extensive reign. Verse eight says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. How does this relate to the king of Israel? Well, essentially, I think the psalmist is saying that the reign of God would extend outside of Israel and that other leaders and other rulers, kings, they would bow to God. And they would allow God to lead over them. Look at verse 11. It says, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Their godly leading would lead to the fear of the Lord. And that would draw others to desire to see how the Lord was was blessing Israel. And that they would want to bow their knee to God. Bow their knee to God themselves. And to desire to be led by God. I think a great example of this is 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon has built this beautiful and mighty kingdom. And it was really the time of Israel's greatest blessing as a nation. And the queen of Sheba comes and visits because she has heard what is happening. But she did not believe it. So she came. She saw what the Lord had done to bless Solomon because of his wisdom and his faith in the Lord at the time. And she was amazed with what she saw. She came to Solomon, and this is what she says in verses nine. Just or in verse nine, she said, "Bless be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness." The Queen of Sheba was amazed, and she blesses. The Lord. She sees the favor of God upon Solomon and his faithfulness. May the Lord do this again. May those who are far from Christ see the church that first fears the Lord and then desires to serve him in such such a way that 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 brings blessings, that, that blesses those outside. The church, and that they would desire to see what is happening within the church because of what God is doing to bless it, And by doing so, it ultimately draw them to the bride, the church himself, that they would repent and that they would believe the gospel. And this is not about being an attractive church. I think it's about being a biblical church, allowing the ordinary means of grace to draw people in. That they would repent, they would believe the gospel so that Christ could be king of their lives. Which leads us to the king's empathetic reign, verses 12 through 14. So not only is God eternal, not only is he vast, but he's personal. He's loving. He's caring. He's empathetic. Look at some of the verbiage here. The king delivers the needy. He has pity on the weak. He saves the lives of the needy. He redeems their life and he views their blood as precious. We have focused much so far in the psalm on the greatness of the king, but now we are going to see the gentleness and the kindness and the care that he brings. Many leaders and rulers, they are great and they rule with an iron fist. But do they have this type of compassion that we see here? Do the CEOs of your companies and the presidents of your companies, do they have this type of compassion for those who work within their company? This is rare. And I think these words mean much. This type of king cares deeply for his people. He desires uh, not what is best for him, but what is best for the people that he is over hard to imagine a ruler paying so much attention to those who are downcast, oppressed, and poor, and needy. But if you think about it, this is ultimately the sinner. Point being, this prayer is for a compassionate, empathetic king pointing to a coming savior. The sinner's attributes are very similar. They're needy, they're poor, they're helpless, they're weak, they need to be pitied. They are oppressed. And essentially, we call these people lost. We call sinners lost. They are lost. I think that's a great way to sum it up. They are lost. Dr. Paul Chitwood, of the uh, president of the International Mission Board, says the greatest problem in the world is lostness. It's not clean water. It's not hunger. It's not poverty. It's not homelessness. It's not. Ethnic oppression, it's not politics, it's not economic of recession and wars. The greatest problem in the world is lostness. And Jesus came ultimately to set the captives free, who've been chained by their sin and shame and headed towards hell. They are weak, they are needy, the enemy oppresses them, and they are so poor spiritually. But God is going to redeem their life by sending himself in a humble way. The king of kings will be born in a little town of Bethlehem to a virgin in one of the most humble manners. You know the song, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. This is how. This is how God is going to redeem the world. And not many in that time, thoughts are new, That this is how he was going to do it. That this is how he was going to save the world from lostness. Jesus Christ. Fully man. Fully God. Came to crush the oppressor. By dying a sacrificial death. For our sins. Precious is their blood. As you look at the end of verse 14. But oh how much more precious. Is the blood of Jesus. Their blood. Was shed for their land and their kindred. But his blood. Christ's blood, it was shed for humanity for those who would ultimately trust in him. And I urge you today, if you do not know this Jesus, to trust him. Trust in his coming, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. I'm gonna ask you in the room, does life get easier when you trust in Jesus? I would say no. Not necessarily. Not all, or many who trust in Jesus are still oppressed. They're still poor. They're still hurting. But those things are temporary. There is hope for the future into eternity, and it comes through faith in Christ and life with him forever. Live for eternity and trust in the gospel of Jesus because he is the elevated king. The last point here, verses 15 through 20, the king's elevated reign. We come to the end of this royal and messianic song to many blessings being prayed for. We see some summation of the everlasting and the extensive reign through those things. There would be blessing long, righteous reigning produces a blessing and long, unrighteous reigning produces wrath. When the world submits to God, it's not the benefit of the king or the benefit of Israel. It's the benefit of the world. They get to experience his grace and his blessing. May God's name endure forever. And many people will be blessed because of him. All nations call him blessed. This goes back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. This is the story of of, uh, Abraham and Isaac. In verse 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said... By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I surely will bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my See the messianic piece here. God's promise is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of Christ. He is the offspring of Abraham. He's the offspring of David. He's the offspring of Solomon. And it goes on. It's right there in Matthew chapter one. He starts his gospel with this genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Abraham. And you go down the line and pick up on David and then Solomon, the author of the song, the nation will be blessed and Christ will be glorified. This is the coming Jesus, the coming king who will save the world, who will bring salvation to the captives who are in their sin and free them from their bondage. This Jesus, we celebrate this Christmas season. He is king and he is at the elevated status and authority to do whatever he pleases. And he's so wise in what he does. And he's good and he's just verse 18 says he does wondrous things, but he alone does wondrous things. Solomon points us all back to Christ. Some kings, they will try and do their best, but they cannot live up to this type of kingship. Only Christ does this perfectly and he is ruling over all, and we pray that the whole earth would be full of His glory. So, knowing this, do we live, do you live your life like God is sovereign over all? Like He is reigning and that He is in control? Do, your, do our lives reflect this? When things are hard, when others around you are going through difficult things and times, we say things like your kingdom come, your will be done. But do we really believe it? Do we really want it? Is God good? Can we trust him? And if you are not trusting in him, then what or who are you trusting in? He is the surest thing that this world has to offer. And it is perfect. I'll end with this. Dr. Stephen Lawson, president of One Passion Ministries, and professor of preaching. At the Master Seminary, it says this on his commentary, it ends his commentary on Psalm 72. I just, just got to quote it because I thought it was perfect. He says, In this fallen world, believers are subject to many injustices. It may be suffering at the hands of an unfair boss, or may be enduring the persecution of an unsaved spouse. Perhaps it is being misunderstood by others because of biblical convictions. Whatever the injustice may be, a king and judge who will rule with perfect fairness. Injustice is coming. This king will have the final word. Christian in the room. No matter what is going on, we have a king. And he's going to set all the wrongs right. And he sees things perfectly and judges fairly. And this king, this Jesus, will have the final word. Let's rest in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do not leave us alone in our sin and that you send a Savior that we may be in perfect relationship with you. Help us not forget that. Help us to refocus our eyes on the King that we say is King, King Jesus, and that through that, Lord, it would Would just help us to live more faithfully for you. To know that we're living for the greatest thing that this world has to offer. And so Father, we trust you with that. We thank you for it. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.